the rules haven't changed, but the lens by which we view them now is drastically altered. And we have to take these additional considerations of the benefits and risk of technology, which have existed in many jurisdictions as a professional responsibility since 2012. Now in 2020, we have to take those seriously. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time in eight years. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Joshua Lennon, Clio's lawyer in residence, who's worked on the front lines of legal technology innovation for more than a decade. Joshua, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. Jack, it is such a thrill to be here. Thank you so much for including me in the podcast. You're, you're welcome, and I'm excited to, to hear what you'll, you'll share with us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to start off, Joshua, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know you already, but for those that don't, and maybe even for those that do know you and want to know a little bit more of your background, yeah. can you tell us about uh, the path that led you to Clio and, and how your role at Clio's evolved over the last uh, many years? Absolutely. Thank you. So I am a lawyer. Uh, I'm an attorney admitted into New York, and I, I did have a bit of a varied career. So uh, when I first started was in 2008, the financial crisis had just happened. Um, and I actually, uh, for personal reasons, walked away from the Missouri Attorney General and founded my own little immigration boutique uh, in order to, to start to build a family and all of those things. Uh, and it was probably the worst time to start a law firm, but also the best time for one particular reason. And that was uh, I had to get serious about learning the practice of law and running not just cases, but the business side myself. Uh, And I needed to do so in a way that that allowed me to travel because my own personal situation involved um, living and working in the state of New York, uh, but also spending a lot of time in Toronto, Canada for personal reasons. And so I needed a law firm that traveled. And there weren't a lot of options back then on how to do that. I could put everything on my laptop and hope the hard drive didn't die. Um, Or I could start taking a look for software that I could use in different locations. Uh, And I'm a bit techie, as you know, but I'm I'm no coder. So I can build a PC, I can can troubleshoot day-to-day consumer technology. But if it breaks too badly, there's, there's no going back for me. So I looked for help. And at the time that I was really starting to build my professional network and connections, uh, I was taking advantage of a a little micro blogging tool called Twitter, uh, which led me to asking for help online from all of these professionals who were, who were going on their own at the same time. And uniformly people started recommending this little tool called Clio to help organize their software. Uh, And so I connected with them via Twitter at the same time. And we started having these back and forth conversations, which were really great. And in a weird bit of serendipity, uh, Clio is based out of Vancouver, Canada. That's where my in-laws are based. And so when I would visit them, I would reach out on Twitter to Vancouver in general and say, hey, who wants to meet up? And I started having these great connections with Ryan Gavro, your co-founder, with other members of the Clio team. And it led to these conversations about what I liked about the product, what I thought 
needed some, some further investment, which is something that Clio has always been really interested in, that type of feedback. And it led to us really starting to talk about, does Clio need a lawyer internally to start soliciting this feedback, to start helping build a further community? And I was the lucky lawyer who got to close down his practice and join Clio on this phenomenal journey that we've been taking. It's almost nine years later, and I'm still learning new things every day at Clio, which has been amazing. And I remember it, it feels like a, a long time ago now, but I remember going out to, to dinner with you on one of those Vancouver visits and, and brainstorming yeah. what would eventually become the, the lawyer in residence lawyer. role. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's certainly been an exciting journey. And um, I don't think I realized uh, until this discussion that your the year that you ventured out on your own actually coincided exactly with the, the founding of Clio as well. So yeah, interesting parallel path there. Um, so Joshua, one of the things you've, you've become very well versed in over your, your career is the, the rules of professional responsibility for lawyers. And, mm -hmm. you know, especially as it relates to you and I both talk a lot about how that uh, it, responsibility relates to cloud computing and, and the adoption yep. of cloud computing tools uh, with, with lawyers. And obviously with the onset of, of COVID-19 and the massive pivots that so many law firms have had to go through over the course of the last six months, uh, the, the rules of professional responsibility should be at the, the forefront of, of lawyers' minds in terms of what does this look like in this new reality where we're maybe working outside of our traditional law offices, we're probably using a whole set of new tools and technologies uh, to support that. So that's what we're going to be going in depth on in, in our conversation today. Yeah. Uh, but before we get into some of the specifics around the, the impacts and implications of, of COVID-19, can, can we back up a moment and just talk at a broad level? What is professional responsibility all about? Who sets the standards for, for listeners that might have a high level awareness, but, but maybe don't know all the details. Can you walk us through that? And we'll use that yeah. as a starting. So the legal industry is actually really fortunate in that it's self-regulated. Lawyers regulate other lawyers. And we've come together under bar associations, under court administrative programs. And we've adopted these rules that are intended to protect both law firms and the clients that use them. And so one of the original versions of this was the Code of Professional Responsibility that came out in 1969. It was published by the American Bar Association as a model code and then was adopted with slight variations amongst the various state regulators over a period of a couple of years. And then later that was then revised again as the Rules of Professional Conduct, again out of the ABA, it's model, and again adopted piecemeal across the states. In 2012, there was a big revision to the rules of professional responsibility where we added a technology component. And under rule 1.1, comment eight, we started talking about the fact that lawyers need to be interacting with technology. In fact, the exact phrase is lawyers must be aware of the benefits and risks of technology as it relates to the practice of law. Um, and a lot of lawyers being both risk aware and risk averse uh, focus on that last little bit. We have to be aware of the risk. But I think we're really starting to see this change where lawyers are starting to talk about the benefits of technology and how we should be leveraging technology on behalf of our clients, but also on behalf of lawyers 
because of, quite frankly, the, the huge amount of stakeholders that we service on a day-to-day -day business. And we not only have to zealously represent our clients, we also have to act as officers of the court. So we're sworn in and represent the judicial system as a whole and have a duty above and beyond our clients sometimes towards that system. We have duties as employers and making sure that we are running a business in such a way that it is sustainable for our employees. Only currently lawyers can own and run law firms. And so we have taken that responsibility, not just of managing cases, but managing a business onto ourselves. And then I think lawyers also have a, a professional responsibility to ourselves as individuals. We know that lawyers are undergoing profound trauma in, when it comes to dealing with a lot of the aspects of being a lawyer. Uh, we have high levels of substance abuse. We have high levels of mental health issues. We have high levels of, unfortunately, suicide related to being a lawyer. And so these, these multiple push and pull of stakeholders are all encapsulated to some degree in our rules of professional responsibility and are designed to protect everyone involved in the system, which is a lot. So COVID-19 came along and yeah. overnight pivoted lawyers into a brand new reality. And I, I, I think your point around lawyers in general being risk averse and, and, and some of the rules reinforcing that risk aversion, I, yeah. I, I think, is, is something that we've seen. I think in some ways hold back adoption of new tools and technologies. And, yeah. and I, I think at least may, maybe uh, be curious to see if you, you agree as well, but I, I feel in, in some way puts too much trust in the status quo and, and yep. doesn't acknowledge the risks that are embedded in what is the status quo today. But the status quo got torn up uh, in, in March and, and many law firms were able, able to or forced to go through really, I, I think what might've been otherwise many years, maybe even a decade plus of change just in a, a handful of, of days or weeks. And tell us what COVID has, has meant for the average law firm from your perspective. And can you also speak to what the implications and impacts on the rules of professional responsibility has been, have been amidst COVID-19 as well? Yeah, so um, you and I both know the adoption curve, right? And it's the idea that as a new technology comes out, you'll have like some really eager early adopters, you'll have then another portion of late early adopters, and then you start to really get the bulk of everybody. And when it came to technology improving the practice of law, we were, we were definitely in that early stage all the way up until about March of this year. Technology had been around for decades. Clio had been around for a decade. Uh, and yet still a, a huge portion of the marketplace was really just trying to maintain their status quo. What had worked five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that's what they were gonna try and, and eke out a little bit longer. And then March of 2020 happened, right? And suddenly what you had done 10 years ago could not work. I could not require clients to come to my office downtown by the courthouse. I could not um, demand that every document required a wet signature. I could not accept checks because nobody wanted to uh, go to the post office to buy a stamp to mail a check to me, much less go to the bank to get a check even like have them available at all because who keeps checks anymore so all of these past business practices were suddenly just dashed out the window 
but the need for people to access legal services, the need for lawyers to continue their business didn't stop in March. And so uh, the early adopters were able to just pick up and keep going because the tools that they had picked up like e-signatures, electronic billing, uh, video conferencing, online scheduling, all of these things like carried forward very easily in a new work from home lockdown environment. But if you hadn't adopted those tools, it was a mad scramble to figure out how to do so in a way that, that met your need as an individual and as a business, but also still meets those professional responsibility needs as an officer of the court and a zealous advocate for your clients. So some examples would be there are rules about communications for lawyers. Um, and you need to be communicative with your clients. And if you suddenly cannot get to your office where you've got the old PBX phone system that's been bolted to the wall, and that's where all your calls get routed to, your clients can't get a hold of you anymore. Uh, and so they had to figure out, how do I live up to my professional responsibility of being communicative while figuring out this new work from home environment? And it became a really difficult problem for a lot of law firms to suddenly go from systems that were adequate, if not a little dated, to completely new systems overnight. And that's where we've seen this push and pull of respect, professional responsibility. Uh, what was good enough is now no longer. And what's gonna be the next thing that enables you to meet your professional responsibility goals? And when you, when you think about the response that the profession as a whole has, has had to COVID-19, I've certainly spoken to some lawyers, both in this podcast and outside of it that, feel like they're to an extent operating blind, flying blind a bit with respect to what this new reality is going to impose on them from, mm -hmm. from a professional standard uh, perspective, pr professional yeah. responsibility perspective. Uh, can, can you speak about that? And, and if, if there's more that can be done to help give these, these lawyer, uh, lawyers that feel this way reassurance that they're quote unquote doing things right? Yeah, well, you talked about before how um, we feel like the rules have been holding the industry back. And I think that is the case, but I don't think it should have been. Um, the rules are actually written incredibly broadly. When they, when they like, state something is not appropriate, they're actually really specific. And so that leaves a lot of gray area. And what's interesting about lawyers is um, when a client comes to us with a problem, we're, we're the ones digging into that gray area and figuring out what the solutions are but we've been really slow to apply that same reasoning to our own, our own systems and services. And so, yes, lawyers have been looking at these rules and saying they hold me back, but they really don't. And so while the rules themselves did not change in March, how we apply them should. And so some great ways to take a look at that are when we look at the benefits and risk of technology, we now know that we need some type of video conferencing with our clients because we can't meet with them face-to-face -face safely, right? Um, it's a risk to both myself as an individual. It might be a risk to my clients to drag them out of their, their own lockdown environments, to expose them to anything in between our, uh, us and our meeting, and also to expose them to myself, which is just an, an unfair ask for legal services yet I still have this obligation to meet with them. So how do I do that in a fashion that both meets my obligation to be communicative, but also meets my obligation of confidentiality? 
So I need to look at a tool and understand, does it have end-to-end -end encryption? Does it have the ability for me to make an adequate record of this conversation such that I can use it on behalf of my client or I can use it in a dispute with my client and making sure that I'm adequately protecting all of the stakeholders involved in it? Is it operating in such a way that it is not necessarily increasing the cost to my client because I have rules about reasonable fees under professional responsibility as well. Uh, and does that mean if I pick the free version, am I then violating those other responsibilities, right? And so the rules haven't changed, but the lens by which we view them now is drastically altered. And we have to take these additional considerations of the benefits and risk of technology which have existed in many jurisdictions as a professional responsibility since 2012. Now in 2020, we have to take those seriously and we have to continually invest, review, and reignite our interest in technology as a professional responsibility. Uh, and the lawyers that adopted it early, they're, they're actually doing quite well, but a lot of other people are playing catch up. How are they playing catch up? We've been, you and I both have been really fortunate to be a part of the American Bar Association's task force on access to justice in the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have seen uh, huge levers being pulled by local, state, national bar associations, by committees within those various groups in putting out some type of guidance that can be utilized by lawyers when it comes to evaluating technology and their own professional responsibility. Most of these are being pushed out as continuing legal education credits or CLEs. Clio has actually done quite a few of these as well. You and I have both participated in those. Um, and we know that this is an area of need within the industry that existed well before COVID-19, but we're just starting to see a lot of our regulators catch up for it. I think you made a super important point there, Joshua, around the, the rules being broader than I think most realize and that the application and how we're thinking about applying these rules to especially technology needs to become a bit more, more agile and that this, this yeah. default trust in the status quo is actually very misplaced. And if you look at, especially I think in the COVID-19 era, through the lens of, of the, the rules of professional responsibility, there are a lot of things about on-premise of every flavor that start to look much higher risk as opposed to their cloud-based counterparts. And that's not just software and, 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 and other types of technology, but whether it's paper files sitting in a, a filing cabinet or, as you pointed out, the, the physical PBX that is in a back closet somewhere, yeah. uh, the, the physical meeting room that you might be uh, asking your client to visit, all of all of these things that are, are a staple of the traditional law office all of a sudden are a liability in the, the COVID-19 era. And when you do that risk assessment that you're sizing up, uh, that you balance that risk reward equation, it feels like COVID has really flipped that equation on end in, in a profound way. Can, can you speak to that for a moment? So as I said, uh, lawyers are risk averse. We're risk aware and risk averse. We've been trained to spot issues but we always haven't always been trained to spot solutions. And that's, that's a bit of the problem there. If we look at the 2019 Legal Trends Report, we found that those lawyers who had business training, any type of business training, 
around law school, whether it was an MBA, whether it was community college business classes, whether it was uh, just owning and managing a business prior to becoming a lawyer, were much more confident in their ability to solve problems related to their business than people who had just gone straight from undergrad to law school. Uh, something like 70% of lawyers who didn't have any of that training uh, felt that they were not confident in solving these problems. And then when we, we hit the COVID-19 moment, right? Suddenly everything's a problem. Uh, and so as a risk averse industry, it seems like we would run and hide. Uh, but I think that's not what lawyers are doing. Lawyers are actually rolling up their, their shirt sleeves, their suit sleeves and finding these solutions. So how are they doing that? They're starting to focus on the benefits and they're doing so, I think with two focuses in mind, the first is themselves, like what can I do? And the second is how does this help my client? So it's a very client centered approach, uh, no pun intended, on how to bring this, uh, the benefits of the legal system back to the public at large because we've all been cut off from each other. So before March of 2020, a lot of lawyers looked at the benefits and risk and focused only on the risk. Now what we're seeing is um, the risk have changed. And we've gone from the potential risk of a supposed technology failure to the very real public health risk that we're facing in our media every day. And that alone has put its thumb on the, the cost benefit analysis of technology and, and just skyrocketed the benefits that I can provide these services. I can do so in a way that meets my professional responsibility needs. And I can do so in a way that actually minimizes some real legitimate harms that could come if I don't change my service. So the public health risk alone is a big change. But now we're also seeing is greater guidance and greater awareness of the benefits of technology from all of the stakeholders that we've talked about before. Clients asking, why can't we do a Zoom call? Uh, so judges saying, why aren't you using technology to enhance your legal research and cut this portion of the, your, your bill for your client? Well, bar association saying, you need to have a work from home policy because you should not be bringing your employees in right now. That, that might actually be a failure of your professional responsibility to expose people to harm. So once we get all of these stakeholders start looking at what are the real risk as opposed to the supposed ones and what are the real benefits, it's, it's very clear that while the rules themselves have not, have not changed, how we're applying them is going to be drastically different going forward. The other related point, Joshua, that, that jumped out as you were you were addressing the last question to me is lawyers are, are not only risk aware and risk averse, but also very precedent driven, not, not just yeah. in terms of uh, the legal precedent, but how previous lawyers have run their law firms and, and yeah. they apprentice and, and learn what what a, a, a law firm is and how it's run uh, through a pretty osmotic process. And I think that's one of the things that creates a lot of inertia in terms of how law firms law firms operate. But as has been said too often, we, we are in unprecedented times. So in your view, what are some of the best run law firms doing in terms of pivoting to this new reality? If we want to look at a so-called 
model law firm that is, is maybe embracing technology in a way that is uh, taking advantage of the benefits of technology in, in a very uh, risk reward optimizing way? What, what, what does that look like? And what's, what, I think things have changed so rapidly that we need, we need something to anchor to maybe as a reference point for what, what a, a better normal might look like. Yeah, I, I like the phrase better normal because I think the, the best run law firms right now aren't thinking about how they get through the pandemic. They're thinking about the type of law firm they want to be after the pandemic. Um, and we know that the pandemic is going to be temporary in nature. We don't know how temporary, but eventually a vaccine will get out there. Uh, eventually we will conquer this public health crisis. So the best run law firms aren't thinking about how do I get through today, but where am I going to be five years from now? And how do I build towards that using this opportunity? So uh, one of the things I saw a lot of lawyers doing and that I encourage a lot of lawyers to do was if they had downtime, this was the time to invest in process and systems. And so a great example of that is document automation. We see a lot of law firms um, really like the idea of document automation, but don't want to take the time to actually build the document template, which drives me crazy because they will take a previous version of a document, go through it with a fine tooth comb a hundred times, changing the client name, changing the client address, changing that the 10 to 12 facts that change in each of those, those documents. But they won't take that same time once to turn that same precedent into a template. And so now we have this downtime to a degree, right? The Legal Trends Report has, has really shown us um, that there was a drop in case creation, there was a drop in hourly billing, uh, but now we seem to be coming out of that. But we had this time where we could invest in process and systems. And that's what the best run law firms did is they didn't panic about where is my next case going to come from? What they panicked about was, can I use this time effectively for when my next case comes in? And can I use those, that template and that investment and that, that new process going forward for the next five years? So they invested in new technology. They invested in better utilizing the technology that they had with, uh, with document templates being that, for example. They invested in what type of clients they wanted to service, right? And so if you had clients that just couldn't get on board with new processes and new technologies, you got a chance to ask yourself, do I wanna keep that client going forward? And because you had made those investments, it's something that those law firms get a choice in how they move forward, as opposed to law firms that are just reacting right now on a day-to-day -day basis. So looking forward, planning for post-pandemic is where law firms should be. We're going to be lawyers for a long time. There's not going to be a pandemic for a long time. Let's create our better normal now. Love it. So Joshua, let's move next to, to how lawyers maybe get more familiar with the, the rules of professional conduct, especially if mm -hmm. they might be evolving or changing uh, amidst COVID-19. Yeah. Is, is CLE the the best answer here? And, and maybe you could start off talking about what, what CLE is a, as a starting point, what has it traditionally covered and, yeah. and maybe how is it evolving in, in the COVID-19 world? That's, thanks. So uh, for the non-lawyers listening, CLE is an acronym for continuing legal education. Lawyers, in order to maintain their professional license, are required on a, a yearly or two-year basis, depending on where you practice, to, to do a certain amount of studying and to prove that they have studied. 
uh, in order to keep their license current. And so traditionally, this has been regulated by the bar associations or the court regulators for each state. They list the number of hours you have to study and they've controlled the format of those studies pretty tightly as well. And so, uh, for example, I actually, I just gave a CLE this morning for the New York State Bar Association. And in the middle of the presentation, I had to stop and tell all the people attending uh, a particular code that they then have to write down and submit in a form to prove that they attended, even though I have a record of everybody who logged in, how long they paid attention, did they leave the screen to go do work on something else, right? It's, it's uh, kind of a ridiculous format, given all the other tools that we have to throw at this problem. But that's been the case. Uh, when I was uh, just was starting out- Was there a black market in... for these codes, Joshua? <laughs> <laughs> it was the simplest code too. It was just the letter, it was just the letter A. <laughs> that was it. That was the entire code. So you have like a one in 26 chance of guessing it, right? Uh, and you can just re-enter it over and over again, I bet, until it gives you the credit. But it was, it was foolish. Um, but when I was a baby lawyer in New York, my first two years of CLE had to be in person. That was a requirement. Uh, and that's something that actually did not change until um, May of this year when the New York bar postponed it for, for new lawyers for all of two months. Uh, and so if you were a new lawyer in New York, you got to take some online CLE between like May and June of this year, um, even though there's a pandemic still going on right now. Uh, so they control the format, but they also control the subject matter. And this is an especially important point. Uh, as we talked about before, lawyers regulate lawyers. And so lawyers thought the only thing lawyers should be studying is substantive legal content, which is very important. I don't want to minimize that. Uh, knowing how courts are ruling on particular issues is very important in your own particular practice area, and you should be studying these things. Uh, but again, as we saw from Legal Trends Report, there is a vast swath of lawyers who are not competent in other aspects of being a lawyer, the business side, the, the mental health and wellness side. And so we have seen slow but steady change in jurisdictions requiring certain types of CLE beyond substantive law. So the biggest example is we've seen the rise of ethics credits. So you have to study not just substantively what the courts are doing with the law or new regulations that are coming out, but also ethics about applying your own professional responsibilities. We've also seen the rise of mental health CLE, really taking a look at how to deal with things like uh, associated trauma. So if you are a lawyer dealing with people go undergoing their own trauma. And, and there are lots of lawyers who deal with this every day, right? Uh, immigration lawyers going up against a system that is very unfriendly to immigrants right now. And, and they are beating their heads against a brick wall, trying to keep families together, um, trying to help people avoid horrible, horrible situations back in their home, home countries and failing because of the system, right? And what does that do to you as a, as a person and a professional to, do everything in your professional responsibility and still not be able to help and then have to get up and do it again the next day. So um, this mental health awareness has become part of our CLE landscape as well. And we're just now starting to see the rise of technology and business CLE as being something that is, is at least being held as equal or worthy 
to substantive and ethical and mental health CLE, but we still have a long way to go. Um, we know that people are thirsting for this knowledge. Uh, one of my, my uh, key moments at Clio was when we hosted our first online webinar. And it was how to run a virtual law firm. Uh, and we had this go-to webinar account. Uh, it enabled us to have 100 attendees. And we thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had 100 attendees? That would be phenomenal. And half an hour after we sent the invitation email, we had over 500 registrations. We were I, desperately. I remember, I remember the panicked rush to figure out how do we upgrade our go-to meeting or go-to yeah. webinar license uh, in the space of a day or two or whatever we had to uh, figure yeah, that yeah. out. Yeah, and, and, and that was like the moment where we realized that lawyers are, are desperate for this type of guidance. And we're just now, this is what, almost seven years after that webinar, just now seeing bar associations start to take that, that hunger for this type of information seriously. Um, and it's only because of the pandemic that they're really kind of jumping on the bandwagon and starting to support this transfer of knowledge that will make lawyers run better law firms. Yeah, if you think about truly what, what CLE could be offering is, is maybe rounding out what I think many lawyers realize is a, a too narrow legal education in, in, in law school about you yeah. know, the, the art of law, but, but really a, a lack of training on, on how to run a law firm, how to market a law firm, how to deploy technology tools in a law firm, how to run a profitable law firm, how to, how to bill your clients uh, in a way that you'll get paid promptly, all, all of these kind of table stakes things to running a law firm are, are, are not addressed in, uh, in law school and, and often are, are carved out of what is eligible CLE credit in, in, in training, which is, which is a bit of a shame. Do, do you see that, that approach changing over, over time? It sounds like you've seen bits of that on a state-by-state -state basis, but do you think, especially with COVID, we're going to see the acceleration of, of maybe a trend to try to make CLE uh, more, more comprehensive in its utility? Yes, I do think we're going to see CLE change. And so there have been changes already. We know that 30 jurisdictions have taken a look at online CLE and at least temporarily waived restrictions they've had against it. So some states had restrictions on the number of hours you could do online CLE. Some states had restrictions on the type of topics that could be online CLE. And they've all made some temporary changes. I think that's gonna be permanent. And that change alone will open up the, the marketplace to start providing more CLE on a variety of different topics. And we know that Florida and North Carolina, for example, have offered technology CLE credit. Uh, Clio has actually been really fortunate to provide some of that CLE credit and technology for those states. And we're gonna to continue to do so. And as new categories emerge, I think there will be both an eagerness on behalf of successful lawyers to, to share their experiences in those new categories like business training, um, and also an eagerness amongst lawyers to learn those new categories of information going forward. There's, there's always a little bit of a carrot in the stick with CLE, right? Um, the rules of professional responsibility haven't really changed since 2012 in most jurisdictions, uh, depending on when they adopted the, the last model code. Um, but you still need ethics credits every year. So there's gonna be a little bit of a stick to make sure people study those things. But as we determine that there's equal validity in these new topics, um, 
there'll be an eagerness to, to study those. And the stick will, will get some of those late adopters to jump on board anyway. So I think it's, it's not the best system, but I think it's an adequate system with these changes. Joshua, can you talk about technology competency? It's, it's, it's one of the things we've seen ethics rules get updated more, more recently and that translate into CLE and in some cases, some states, uh, mandatory uh, credits in, in technology competency, uh, yeah. which I, I think is, is trending in the right direction in terms of maybe getting that risk reward profile of, of technology right in the, in the average practice. Can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah. And so, um, unfortunately, we, we, it took a long time for technology guidance really to start to, to blossom. And you and I both know that North Carolina, for example, was the first state to put out um, an ethics opinion on cloud computing and whether or not lawyers could even do it. And we both had lawyers to our face say, oh, I can't use the cloud, even though there was absolutely no guidance forbidding using the cloud, right? right. Uh, and so that's uh, that, that risk averse uh, standard that we were talking about. And what they should be doing is using analogous reasoning to come to the exact opposite conclusion, right? Can I provide the, the confidentiality that I am required under my, my rules of professional responsibility? Yes, here's how. Sure, it's a different method, but it's analogous. So yeah, cloud computing is absolutely fine. But for the longest time, we had to wait for states to form a committee, argue amongst themselves, publish like a two-page guidance that doesn't really say anything other than, yeah, why not? Uh, and, and that's what it took for a lot of these lawyers. What we're getting to now is I think we're starting to see that technology is moving so fast that the benefits are becoming so apparent and the need of both clients and legal professionals to seize those benefits for their own good is really going to drive people taking a look at that cost benefit analysis, seeking the benefits first and figuring out how to mitigate the risk second. And that is a completely different approach than, than what we've seen in the past. So it's, I need to get faster. I need to get um, better. I need to be more certain. The technology is existing for all of these things. It's, a, it's like the $6 billion man or woman, right? Uh, and if we can get our, our sound guys to, to throw in that bong, bong sound effect from that show, now is the time to do it. <laughs> there we go. I'm showing my age, well, but Jack got it. I, I love it. We'll, we'll get that added in, uh, yeah. in post-production. Yeah, production. Production. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so the, we're starting to see states are, are recognizing that we should be studying these issues and moving forward as a whole on that. There are a couple ways that that's coming about. There's CLE. There's partnerships with law schools now where they're doing experiential training. There is post-law school incubators where uh, new law firms can go and get guidance directly and mentorship on how to do a lot of these programs. So we are seeing that technology is being embraced by regulators. Uh, it's still much like William Gibson's future, um, not evenly distributed, but it will get there. So Joshua, maybe to round out the conversation, uh, there's more outlets uh, and places to access CLE training than there's there's ever been before. There's uh, we, we, so many more options than maybe the the, the four gray walls uh, of a physical building that CLE yeah. used to 
uh, be held in. Can, can you talk a little bit about what the, the new landscape looks like for, for CLE and, and for our listeners that are looking to tap into something new and, and, and maybe exciting to, to reach their CLE accreditation requirements? Uh, what, what's out there? Yeah. So no longer is CLE restricted to the hotel ballroom by the airport. You and I have both been in those rooms. <laughs> too, uh, too, too often. Yes. Yeah. Uh, CLE is now actually moving not just to, to um, these webinars, which we're participating in and, and giving quite frequently, but also moving to entirely new formats. So there are podcasts now that are CLE accredited and listening to the podcast can be your own CLE. There oh, are interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's uh, actually one out of Ontario put out. Uh, actually, you were a guest on it, which is kind of funny. Uh, put out <laughs> and and given credit by the Law Society of Ontario. And so, if you're our subscriber, it can be your CLE. There are now um, interactive quiz quizzes that are being put out and given CLE credit by the State Bar of Florida. Uh, and so if you go to legalfuel.com, that's the website for the State Bar of For uh, Florida's training and education component, uh, you can find these quizzes. And by going through a short little YouTube video and answering some questions at the end, you can obtain technology CLE credit by, by doing these types of things. Uh, and I think we're only going to see much more diverse formats happening. Um, I myself am a subscriber to a service called Lawline which is just this, this vast library of pre-recorded CLEs. And they're organized by topic, by jurisdiction. Uh, and so when a novel question comes my way, one of the first things I do is I go into this library and I just play, play a webinar for an hour and make sure I really understand all of the issues and topics uh, such that I can then go and really help with the questions that have been laid on my desk. And what's great about that is it only costs like 200 bucks for the entire year. Uh, and I'm able to get all of my services. The last place that I wanna recommend that people start taking a look at is the, the rise of the online conference. And so this was uh, quite frankly, how people got CLE many times is conferences would schedule themselves based on CLE deadlines. Um, I, I know, for example, Ohio always had this awful, awful conference in December uh, <laughs> because everybody's CLE deadline was like January 1. It sounds like so, you traveled to Ohio in December too often, Joshua. Oh, I, every time I swore it was the last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but now these conferences have moved online and so they're much more convenient and much more accessible. You don't have to travel to Ohio in late December. To, to get your CLE credit. And so look for these online conferences and they will be offering you substantial credits, uh, six, 10, 12 hours from the comfort of your own living room with interactivity, with community. And so find these conferences, seek them out and you will both learn something, improving yourself as a lawyer and advance your law firm at the same time. And, and Josh, we'd be remiss not to mention our very own Clio Cloud Conference happening in uh, October, happening on October 13th. Uh, and there's CLE being offered at the Clio Cloud Conference, as, as I understand it, for every state, every, every province. Speak, speak to that for a moment. Yeah, wow. So obtaining CLE credit as a provider is actually a huge pain. Uh, mostly because every state still pretty much relies on paper forms. Uh, that was another, that's another fun transition we're going to see. 
And so we've partnered with the American Bar Association and their CLE filing arm, just because they do so many of them, to vastly scale our own applications. So before uh, we would apply a handful of states that we knew people were coming from, and then as attendees signed up, we would continually expand those pools of applications. Uh, but each one asked the same thing like a dozen times. Um, each one required a slightly different amount of information. Uh, it was very manual and, and very costly for both ourselves in order to apply for it and for the attendees in order to obtain it, right? Because oftentimes uh, we would have to submit particular forms or particular codes like the letter A, uh, like Sesame Street uh, to our <laughs> attendees. And it really broke things up. So now this year partnering with the ABA, it's uh, we've just decided everybody gets CLE, period. And now if you are an attendee from New York, California, Alabama, Montana, it doesn't matter how many people are attending the conference. If you want CLE credit, you will walk away with it. And we're looking at at least six hours with a variety of different types of credits, depending on the sessions that you attend. And so if you're looking for ethics credits, if you're looking for professional responsibility, if you're looking for health and wellness, if you're looking for technology, we will have applications right now with your state regulator being evaluated. And by the time the conference comes, we hope to be able to just hand you your certificate as you virtually walk out the door with all of that credit in hand. And bang for buck, I think this is hard to beat as well with, I, I think, uh, tickets in the $250, $300 range for six hours of, of CLE. That's a, yeah, that's a that's bargain. Tailored. That's tailored uh, with some of the best speakers in the industry and some of the best speakers outside of our industry, which is something that I've always respected about the Clio Cloud Conference. Um, lawyers regulate lawyers, but as we've kind of heard in this discussion, uh, it's very inward looking. It's not always giving us as an industry what we need. So I like that the Clio Cloud Conference looks outside of that to bring those best ideas inward and still helps lawyers meet their CLE credit at the same time. Uh, absolutely. Two, two speakers from outside the legal industry. I'm super looking forward to our Seth Godin, who is one oh, of the best yeah. marketers on the, on the planet. Uh, yep. and Angela Duckworth, the, the author of grit, mm -hmm. uh, going to offer, I, I think, amazing, amazing perspectives for, uh, for attendees. And I, I'm personally looking forward to, to hearing from them. Well, we're, we're just about at time, Joshua, mm -hmm. to, to round out, do you have any parting thoughts to share with uh, our listeners? I think being a lawyer is all about continuing to learn. The law will always change and the business of law will always change as well. We are at probably the most exciting time in the practice of law in the last 100 years. Uh, and we're very fortunate to be a part of that. But we will not move forward as an industry if we don't all keep that learning mindset and keep experimenting and keep teaching each other together. So professional responsibility means being a better lawyer every day and we have those means in reach let's seize them that's an amazing note to end on thank you for joining us today joshua uh mm. really enjoyed chatting with you and uh we'll talk to you again soon all right thanks jack look forward to it thanks for joining us on daily matters a podcast from clio rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Boland, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. 
Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 